Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. with you this morning. Parents, aren't you glad that our little ones going back into this room aren't just going back there to hang out and color pictures of Noah with smiling animals? They're learning theology. They're learning the gospel. Our little ones are going to be able to explain the gospel more than some with PhDs by what they're learning. Romans chapter 9 Let's read verses uh, 1 through 13. We're in this second point, which is in verses 6 through 13. Um, as I read, I'm going to pause just a little bit and, and kind of show you. I do think it helps us to understand how the, the thought process is going on, how the passage uh, breaks down and is outlined. So in verses 1 through 5, we see Paul's grief. Grief over the lost souls of men and women that he loves, his kinsmen according to the flesh. Starting in verse 6, we have the second point that we've been working through. And Lord willing, the plan is to finish that uh, this morning. So verse 1, chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. And then notice the turning point here. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So here's the statement that will sum up point number two. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And then 10 through 13, this is what we're meditating on this morning. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come and we draw near. So Lord, we who are in Christ, we children of promise, those who are bought by the blood, you have come, you have pursued us and rescued us, you have shown us your glory, rescued us from the pit, rescued us from ourselves when we were sprinting towards hell. Lord, and you did things for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. 
You changed what we like, what we want, what we love, what we desire. You've drawn us to you, called us. We now trust you. We didn't do that on our own. You've helped us to trust you. God, we come and we ask, show us more. Show us more. Lord, that is just just one of the greatest requests that I have right now, Lord. Show us your glory. We trust you. We love you. We know you're glorious, but we want to know more. We want to be fed from the word so that we see, so that we behold, so that the, the worship that comes as we behold deeper things, greater truths with more clarity, and we see you, Lord, that our worship would swell and increase and be overflowing. Please bring that. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, necks that are not stubborn, but that bow. Lord, and I I pray, show us more, and I pray, God, for any in the room that has not yet been born again, that has not yet trusted in Christ, please make this the day that their eternity changes. Give them ability for the light bulbs to come on and them to trust in Christ. Bless our little ones, oh God, as they learn the the gospel and how repentance fits in today. I pray light bulbs will come on back there. Make them into disciples, oh God. Bless your word, your work. Help me in the work here. Lay a guard over my lips, but grant me unction. Help, oh God, glorify your name. And we pray these things through Jesus. Amen. We all have uh, a number of assumptions, assumptions about just life, assumptions about the world, assumptions about God, assumptions about ourselves that are just flat untrue. We have presupposed ideas that we've never taken the time to logically think out. We just assume them. That's kind of what an assumption is. You have not taken time to really think through the deep reasoning of whether or not this is valid and is this supported by the word of God, supported by plain reason. We just kind of hold to them and we've never thought it through. Carpenters learn that there are some critical errors that can be made by assumptions. So a carpenter's on the job site and he needs to cut a ceiling joist. So he goes over and he takes a very careful measurement. He writes it down, you know, measure twice, cut once. He he goes through all of these things. He walks over to the pile of lumber. He grabs a two by 12, walks it over to the saw horses, plops it down. He pulls his tape measure off the end, draws it out and makes a careful measurement down to the 32nd of an inch. And then he takes a square that he trusts and he knows is true and he makes a careful line, makes a careful cut and walks over. But he has made a critical error. Did you catch it? The the end that he pulled his tape measure off of, he just made the assumption that from the factory, it came square. Every carpenter learns, you do that, you're going to get burned. These days when two by twelves cost as much as a new car, okay, that's a critical error. It's an assumption that is made, just not even thinking about it. Here's another example. You're watching a movie and 
You know, this, this is played out just hundreds of times in all kinds of movies. And there's a son who gets into an argument with his parents and his parents are trying to lead him this direction to make a decision. But the, the son is rebelling and going this other direction and they're, they're having it out with this argument. But then eventually comes this dramatic moment where the son says to his parents, but dad, it makes me happy. And then the sentimental music starts to play. And the dad gives his son this kind of knowing apologetic nod. <laughs> well, I didn't know that, son. And then just, you know, the viewers who are watching this have their brains shaped and formed on the potter's wheel of pedophilic Hollywood. There's, there's an assumption about life being made there. It's an assumption that a lot of times is not even questions because most of the viewers aren't going, hey, wait a second, let's back up and get to the deeper root. Is that the meaning of life? I'm here just to make myself happy. I'm here just to gratify my desires, no matter what it takes, whatever sexual perversions I need to pursue. I'm just here to be happy. These are unthought through assumptions about life, our hearts naturally have hundreds of them, H hundreds of them. Where did they come from? Well, some of them are picked up along the way from our environment. You know, think of all of the cliches that get thrown around. Think about all those posters lining the school hallways. You can be anything you want to be. These things get adopted and, and, and fashioned into a worldview of how you see the world. But then some of them, I think it can be argued, you know, we have inherited a fallen nature from Adam. You're born depraved. Our thinking is depraved. Even from birth, there are some assumptions about this world that we can be wired in even from conception. And so there are a great many wrong assumptions we have about the world. And the reason why I'm bringing this up and why I've said everything that I've said is because our sinful hearts naturally have a number of assumptions about God, about the world, and about ourselves that will give us a natural aversion to the truths that are presented in Romans 9. Even as a Christian... You can come to Romans 9 if you're new to studying the Bible and you're still kind of young in all of this, of going deep and the studying the things of the Word of God. You can come to Romans 9, even as someone who trusts in Jesus, and go, whoa, whoa, whoa here. That, 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 that's not right. God's not supposed to do that. You know, the world's different than that. And what it is, is these assumptions that we've had, these unthought through assumptions are being challenged. We all have assumptions about this world. How do we discover the truth? Answer the word of God. God from heaven has spoken and the Bible is not just an instruction manual for life. It is um, revelation of reality as well. It's revelation of God. It's revelation of who you and I are. And there are a number of assumptions that as we walk through Romans 9, you're going to find challenged in your own heart. Like, I have the power and ability to choose whatever I decide. Wrong. Wrong. You're bound to what you desire. You're bound to what you love and what tastes good. We're going to have a lot more conversation about that. But assumptions like 
God is required to give everyone equal opportunities. That's a big one in our culture right now. Wrong. God is able to dispense grace as he desires and as he sees fit from heaven. And so I'm I'm giving all of this introduction because we're about to consider some truths here from Romans 9 that you may find your heart having some resistance to. But from the very beginning, what I'm pleading with you is we don't come to the word of God and think I know more than God. You don't come to the law where God reveals justice and shows here's what this crime deserves and you think, oh, heavens no, we could never lash anyone. You don't come to the word of God and think you know more about righteousness than God does. We come to the word of God and see his standard of righteousness and our job is to conform our thinking to match what is being revealed as righteousness from heaven. God is showing us here's who he is, here's how this world works, and here's some more insights about who we are and our abilities and inabilities. And we don't try to change the word of God to match what I think it should say. We bow. We submit. We change our worldview to match what the truth of God's word is revealing. He is glorious in ways we would not know unless it were revealed in the Bible. Now, thus far in this chapter, as we think through verses 1 through 9 that we've made it so far, here's what we've seen. We've seen Paul's grief over his fellow countrymen, the nation of Israel, because the majority have rejected Jesus as the Messiah and therefore have missed salvation. But Paul makes it clear that this does not mean that the word of God has failed. God promised to save and bless Israel. But the question that's asked in this passage is, there's more mysteries being revealed here, Who is the true Israel? And the answer that point number two, verses six through 13, has revealed is it is not just those who are born from a bloodline. It's not just those of the flesh who are physical Israelites. They're not children of God just because they were born physical descendants of Abraham. It is the children of the promise who are the true children of God. So we saw uh, point number two has three sub points. The first one is, not all Israel is Israel. So not all physical Israel are the true spiritual Israel of God. Secondly, salvation does not come according to the flesh, like what you're born into or works that you do. It it doesn't come according to the flesh. It comes according to the promise of God. That's who the children of promise are. And then here's this third sub point. We introduced it last week. And today, this morning, the goal is just to think and meditate on this third sub point. And then this will finish out the section. The third sub point is the children of the promise have been chosen by God from the foundation of the world. They are those who are the elect of God. So point number two. Subpoint C, if you're keeping track of the outline, and I think it helps to see how the passage breaks down and makes sense when you kind of know how the arguments fit together. God chooses who the children of promise are. Let me take these just the next about two, three minutes, and I'm going to kind of give you this doctrine in a nutshell. And everything we do after that will just be further meditation and then going deeper and clarifying what this is. A definitive statement is made in verse 11. If you look at this again. 
Before these twins were born, uh, Jacob and Esau, God made a choice. He chose that only one of these two would carry on the covenant promise, that would be the child of promise. So it wouldn't be both, it would only be one. And then God chose which one it would be. God chose the one that confounded human wisdom. He chose the younger one rather than the older one. And this is an example of God making a divine choice that was not based on any merit of the person. God did not choose Jacob because he was more godly in the womb. That doesn't happen. God did not choose him because of anything based in the person. This is a choice rooted entirely in the pleasure and the will of God. And that is an illustration. It is an illustration of the fact that every single person who trusts in Christ to be saved, who becomes a child of promise, was chosen by God even before the world was made. In all of history, every sinful person, every ungodly person who deserves hell, but who trusts in Christ and so is saved. So that'd be us. I'm speaking to you who are in Christ. If you have not trusted in Christ, then this is the number one thing that you need more than you need your next breath of oxygen. But for you who are in Christ, we were sinful, ungodly, sprinting towards hell, did not deserve heaven, but have been brought to salvation. Every person who trusts in him, Old Testament and New Testament, that person was divinely chosen by God before the world was made. And you were chosen not because of anything based in you, but because of God's choice. Before the world was spoken into existence, God planned history. In Psalm 139, it says that even before you were born, all the days that were, would come to you were written in God's book. They were ordained by God when as yet there was none of them. In Jeremiah 1, God told the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and appointed you that you would be a prophet. Now think about that one. I think that one is helpful. Before Jeremiah was even born, God chose that Jeremiah would become a Christian. And that wasn't what they were called in the Old Testament, but you don't know what I mean. He would be born again and trust in God with saving faith. And then not only that, but Jeremiah would then be led by God to become a prophet. This was ordained before he was even born. Jeremiah was born and he grew up and at some point in his life, he learned the word of God. How did that happen? Probably his parents, but we don't know. Jeremiah learned the word of God and God was the one directing so that Jeremiah would come into contact and be taught the scriptures. He was taught the word of God and then God came to Jeremiah and did things that Jeremiah could have never done on his own in his own strength. Jeremiah wanted God. See, it sounds so simple. But we actually learned this is one of the things that apart from the grace and the spirit of God, we are incapable of doing while we were sprinting towards hell. Incapable of truly wanting and trusting God. 
God came to Jeremiah while he was ungodly, marching towards hell, and God did something for Jeremiah that he could never do himself. God called Jeremiah to himself. Jeremiah believed, but he believed because God aided him, turned him, awakened him, opened his eyes, worked the new birth, wooed him. God used means both that we can see and understand, like maybe his mama prayed for him a lot. And maybe his father led him in Bible study in the evenings, things we can understand, but there are also invisible things that God was doing that we cannot see, like turning light bulbs on in Jeremiah's mind and heart so that he would trust. Jeremiah believed, but what this doctrine is teaching is that there are things that happen even before the person believes. God has predestined a plan for this world. God's plan is unfolding by his ultimate orchestration. It includes millions of means and methods and a major part of God's plan unfolding in this universe is the saving of souls by the blood of his son. It is a major part of the work of God. This is this point in a nutshell. God has chosen now, verse 11 says that this choice of who the children of promise would be, it was not based on, look at the text again, look at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works. Okay, so that one's made clear. Not because of works, but because of him who calls this calling, that's this work of the new birth, the drawing of God, the opening of eyes. But now jump down to verse 14. So after some hard truths are stated, look at verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Let me just pause there for a second and say this. I would love it if we could just stay here the rest of the day and, and I could just keep preaching, okay? Like, I got no problem with that, okay? The problem is the human attention span and eventually there would be mutiny, okay? I would have no problem with just staying for hours and just keep going. Because when we leave today, we just don't have time to fully investigate the question, is this righteous? Like, is this righteous? And if this is your first time to study through these things, you will leave today and you may have some things going on in your head going, I don't see how this is right. I didn't think it was supposed to work this way. I thought God worked differently than this. And you're going to have like a week worth of questions. Well, before you burn the place down, okay, decide to come back next week. And we're going to fully ask this question, is this righteous? Spoiler alert, yes. Everything he does is righteous, but there are ways that this works that, that reshape and transform our worldview from what we thought, the way the world works and who we are. Okay, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Now, we're asking the question here, what is this predestination based on? Look what it's not based on, verse 15. For he says to Moses, so he quotes the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, here's the conclusion from that quote from the Old Testament, so then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. What about my will? It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. 
It ultimately depends on God. Oh, to be saved, you must will something. You must choose, I want to follow Jesus. But what Romans 9 and other passages are showing is there was work of God that was happening before you wanted this. Before you chose, I want to follow Jesus. There was choosing of God that took place and calling that drew you to himself. So look, it is not based on anything in the person. So what's clearly being revealed here is that God chose who would be saved and his choice is not based on anything in them. God does not wait to see, you know, who's born into this world and who acts good. And God's like, she, that woman, she's good. I'm going to save her. No, this choice was made before the foundation of the world. But what is also happening is that God did not look into the future like a fortune teller, look through the tunnels of time and see who was better than others, who was more deserving and say, oh, I'm going to save him because he's a better guy than others around him. That's not what's happening. And it's also not the case that God looked into the future to see if somebody was presented with the gospel, would he say yes or would he say no? Oh, the ones that say yes, I choose them because they were going to choose me anyway. That's not what's happening here. We did not want God unless God drew us. You cannot be my disciple. Jesus said, you, you cannot be my disciple unless the father who sent me draws him. We are uninterested in God until he draws us. God did not base this on anything in us. You want God because God chose you and called you. God has done a work of drawing. So here are two of the truths being revealed here. First, salvation is ultimately a result of God's choice, his election. And then secondly, this choice is based on no conditions in the person. And that's why we call this doctrine unconditional election. So it's election, it's God's choice, and it's unconditional. It's not based on any conditions in the person. So it's not like God looked at the future in history and said, I want to save all of the bald-headed, bearded guys, in case you get confused when you look around the church once in a while, okay? God did not say, I want to born, you know, I'm going to save everybody born of this group. God does not like one people group more than another. There is no partiality with God. God has chosen souls that he will save from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, how do we know that, by the way? How do we know that? We know that, well, you know, the easy answer is because the Bible tells us. In the book of Revelation, there's a scene. It's one of the things I love most about Revelation is we get these glimpses of heaven. There's a scene in Revelation 5 that we're shown a, a, an event that has not yet occurred. It will occur in the future. And if you are in Christ, you will be there. It's the scene where all of the redeemed from all of history, we're all gathered around the throne. We're gathered around the throne. It is the multitude of those bought by the blood of Christ, both Old Testament and New Testament. Because remember, Abraham was bought by the blood of Jesus. He, didn't know just, he just didn't know who Jesus was yet, and it hadn't happened yet. He was saved on credit. 
All of those redeemed, bought by the blood of Christ, were gathered around the throne and we are worshiping. We're worshiping God the Father and we're worshiping him for who he is and his great plan of redemption from him, through him, to him are all things. And this is significant, by the way, we are worshiping Jesus, the son. We're worshiping him as the lamb who was slain. And we're singing a new song on that day. We're told what the song is going to be. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and with your blood, you purchased people from God, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The text is very specific. These are people who have believed on the Lord Jesus. So here's what I mean, and this is to further spell this out. When I say that there will be souls in heaven from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation... Well, we know what the most popular spiritual belief in our culture is today. <laughs> well, of course, because everybody's going to be there. Everybody who breathes and doesn't murder people, all going to be in heaven. We who know the Bible, we know the great plight of mankind. Sin deserves wrath. Sinners deserve hell. I deserve hell. And so do you. The plan of God was that he decided that out of a race of criminals, lawbreakers, a planet full of people who were all sprinting towards hell, God said, I am going to show grace to some of them and I'm going to do what they could not do and I'm going to grab them. They're sprinting towards hell. They want rebellion, they're going there, I'm going to grab them and I'm going to do what they could not do. I'm going to draw them to myself. But God's plan worked out like this. God could have done this any way he wanted to. You, you always got to remember, God wasn't copying off what somebody else did, okay? He's the original, okay? This is all from nothing. God could have made it that the souls he wanted to save, maybe the moment we were born into this world, just shot right up to heaven. That would have been awesome. He decided to do something different. He decided to send his son, Jesus, this, and I do believe this is the only way that it could have worked, is the way that the gospel went down, that the blood of Jesus paid for uh, the, the justice price to pay the wrath of God. But then here's how God decided that salvation would come. God could have done this part any way he wanted to. God could have said, you know, whenever they do, you know, a thousand good works, when they hit a, a thousand and one, bam, they're saved. Or when they go to church for their 500th time, bam, you're saved that time. He didn't choose to do it in any of those ways. He chose to do it like this. To hear the glorious name of the Lord Jesus and what he did and to trust him. And do you see what that does? That magnifies the name of Jesus. The father is putting the spotlight of history on his son so that Jesus is glorified. We trust in him. God has chosen for salvation to come like this. So these souls who are elect, chosen by God, God comes in history, in real time, in your life, there are a million events that all led, I don't think I'm exaggerating by the way, a million details that all worked up to a moment that you believed.
I can remember a conversation I had with my mom months before I ever heard the gospel. And I know that that conversation humbled me and and put me in a right kind of frame of mind to be scared of hell. So that when I heard the gospel, I I was more receptive. A million details he worked. So that when you heard the gospel and he brought the gospel to you by somebody telling you and then worked and awakened and brought the new birth, you believed. You, you chose to follow Jesus. You placed your faith in the Lord Jesus. But before any of that, God was at work in you. And so this is why Romans 10, when we come there, it's all still in the same discussion of God's sovereignty and everything. But when we come to Romans 10, there's going to be this big discussion on the human side of things that still Christians must tell the gospel. Christians must, or people must believe on the Lord Jesus and confess him. That's why the gospel has to go to the nations. That's why Jesus said he's not coming back until all the nations have heard the gospel And when we consider how it is all unfolding, the mystery and the complexity, it it, it is something to marvel at. It is something to just worship God for his sovereignty when you just take a step back and look at church history and we look at what God is doing today. God is working so that the gospel will come to not only all the nations, by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, we've already hit the nations. That's great news. We've brought the gospel to all the nations. We have not yet gotten the gospel to all the people groups and all the languages. God is working so that the gospel comes to a people group for a season of time and souls are saved. He draws his elect and then in just uncanny kinds of providence, he works so that the gospel comes to other places. Did you know that at one time North Korea was predominantly Christian? And of course, you know what it is now. At one time, the nation of Scotland was was this place where the gospel flourished. It's where the Presbyterian church was flourished there. And then today where Logan and Elizabeth Hickey are, there's less than 2% who even claim the name of Jesus. Did you know that in the last 10 years, there are more former Muslims who have repented and turned to Christ than in all other centuries combined? God is bringing his gospel to new tribes, new people groups, new languages, according to a mysterious unfolding that just leaves us breathless. And we're just amazed at it. Don't ever get over the fact that God brought the gospel to you. Don't ever get over the fact that God works so that somebody told you and he did not leave you sprinting to hell. He grabbed you. He drew you. God is working. He is bringing his gospel to all of his elect throughout time and history and every once in a while, some uncrazy thing or just kind of uncanny things happen. Sometime read the book called Brusco. Y- young college guy, Steve Brusco, just drops out of college and goes to find a, an unreached tribe in the Amazon jungle and brings them the gospel. And God builds a church there. We don't even know how it ended up because he's still there. God in his uncanny providence is bringing his gospel to the elect and all of it is happening according to the direction of God. Jesus said, I will build my church and that's exactly what he is doing. 
From the right hand of the Father at his throne, he is upholding the cosmos by the word of his power, and he is building his church. Jesus is stirring, you know, and one of the ways the church is built up is whenever our faith is deepened and we are sanctified. Bear that in mind as well. But it's also as in every time a new soul is saved, this is more that Jesus is building his church. Jesus stirs so that a guy wakes up 30 minutes early, earlier than he normally does because he's really been thinking more about studying the Bible deeper. So he wakes up, he reads a passage that sets his heart on fire. He goes to work and he's more on fire than normal. So he shares the gospel with a coworker. That co worker the night before had been led to think on death for some reason because something he heard on the radio and God then awakens this guy's eyes and Jesus is building his church. All of it is happening by the direction of God. He's unfolding his purposes and it is not based in anything in the person. You remember Ephesians 1? Flip over there if you will for a second. Ephesians 1. I'll row through it quickly. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, speaking of these great gifts that we've been given. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. That's the gospel according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Jump to verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end. That's an important statement, meaning here's the goal. Here's the issue. Here's what it's all leading to, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Notice two big things. It's just confirming what we're seeing in Romans 9. Notice two big things. Number one, God predestined certain individuals to salvation before the world was even created. God has decreed a plan for all of history. Now understand, that plan includes dust particles in far galaxies and the life cycles of these cicadas we're hearing about. Okay, it includes all of that. But you understand that the salvation of souls is a major part of the end goal. And what I mean by that is God's in control of even these cicadas but you can't really sum up the whole point of history with the cicadas. But him saving souls, this is a major part of his big work in history. God is working to glorify, magnify, exalt his own name to the praise of his glory and the salvation of souls is the major way that he is doing that. God is working so that, so here, here, here are we, sprinting towards hell and uninterested in God. And what has God now changed you into? You're in Christ, you're a new creation. What, what, it, what are you, new creation? You're someone who now loves him. You're someone who worships him. That's why we're here. 
We want to exalt him. We want to magnify him. We are grateful for our salvation now, and we will be grateful forever. 10 billion years from now, we will still be enthusiastically singing hymns of praise for saving us. But there's more. There's this whole theme you can trace through the Bible that God is working to reveal even to other creatures what he is doing in the saving of souls. Angels look in and are watching. They're involved in ways that are still a mystery to us. The Bible says they're ministering spirits. They're aiding all of this work of the gospel and salvation of souls. They're watching and seeing what God does. And then what does the Bible tell us? Every time a soul is saved, the angels are fueled in their worship. Like they get it. They're going, <laughs> look at him. Look how gracious he lives. Look at this mercy. He saved that dude. He was sprinting towards hell. He is amazing. God is revealing his glory by demonstrating these things, even to creatures that don't need salvation. Angelic creatures, maybe creatures on other planets we don't even understand. God is at work revealing these things for the display of his glory. And then secondly, God's choice is based on, look at verse 11, if you're in Ephesians 1 still, based on according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Meaning this, why did God predestine? What was it based on? God chose Matthew, the tax collector. Remember, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. There's another illustration. So God chose Matthew, the tax collector, to be saved and be an apostle. Why did he choose Matthew? The point is, it was not based on anything in Matthew, either there or foreseen. It wasn't based on Matthew's good deeds that he would do. God looked in the future. It wasn't based on Matthew's Jewishness. It was based on Ephesians 1.11, his own purposes, according to the counsel of his will. God doesn't go looking for counsel from anybody. God doesn't need you to tell him what he ought to do. God, there's only one counsel God seeks, his own. He's infinite in knowledge. And Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 tells us the driving motivation of God. So God does it according to his own pleasure. Well, what's his pleasure? God does it because he wants to. Well, why does he want to? You realize the Bible could have just left that one blank. And we just would have said, we don't know. But he does tell us. He does tell us the driving motivation of all of it. God is working so that he will be magnified so that he will be seen and worshiped by all creatures. I, I love the hymns, the, the songs we sang this morning. I don't know if you noticed, but a couple of them were all about all of creation, the birds, the sun, the moon, all of creation, worshiping and exalting God. This is why God is working. You're in Ephesians one, look at verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace, so that, Men, angels will see how gracious he is and will worship him for his grace. Then look at verse 12, to the praise of his glory. That's similar, but different. We see that God is glorious and we worship him for it. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Uh, if you turn back to Romans 9, you can jump back there. If you look at verse 23, 
He did so, so he did all of this, this choosing, to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy. If you're in Christ, that's what you are, a vessel of mercy, a recipient of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God has wanted to wow you with his mercy so that you would marvel. Second Corinthians 4.15 says that grace is spreading so that praise will spread. First Peter 2.9 says that we were saved so that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into life. And 50 other verses that we've looked at on other days. You know what they say. God chooses for the glory of his name. It's not based on who deserves it and who does it. It's not based on who deserves it more. It is unconditional. And us knowing why he does it, it matters, guys. And it matters big time. Because we'll still, you can believe in election and still get the world wrong and get your relationship with God wrong and misunderstand him in some ways, big time. One of my really close friends, he sent me a screenshot this week of, of, of a meme, okay? So the new way theology is taught, okay? These social media memes. He sent me a screenshot, I think it was this week, and he sent it and he's all excited and he goes, this is wrong, isn't it? And he's all excited because he's learning the doctrines of grace and he's been learning like the big truth that it's all about the glory of God. So he's all super excited. So he sends me a shot of the screenshot of the meme and here's, here's what it says. See if you can catch what's wrong. It says, God chose you. Okay, we're starting off good. That sounds great. You're maybe getting ready to like and share on your computer. God chose you and would rather die for you than live without you. Now you catch what's going on there. Now it's this idea, God chose you. Okay, this is good, sound and reformed, but then it goes to here. Because man, oh man, you are something. You are the treasure. You are so desirable. You are so beautiful that God just had to have you. That is not the Bible. That is not the Bible. The Bible is God chose you when you and I were undesirable, unlovely, sprinting towards hell. Listen to me, you don't fulfill him. Like, like him, him getting you, you, know, you don't strut into heaven like, oh yeah, now you got your prize. Like that's not how this works. You do not fulfill God's heart in some way that now he's complete. It's not how it works, he doesn't need you. He has from all of eternity been completely satisfied and joyful. God chose to save you to demonstrate his grace. God chose to save you and it is love. Don't misunderstand. See, that is the thing about love. Love benefits both people. Love benefits the husband and the wife. Love benefits in this case, glorifies God and benefits us. It is his kind intention, but he made you a recipient of his mercy so that you would see his glory and worship him. We will get this really wrong if we think God chose me, but he chose me because he just had to have me. It is unconditional election. That is what the Bible is teaching. And a reference I've made a number of times, let's not forget, we're the bat boys at this game. We're not 
the big show. The spotlight is not on us. The crowds have not gathered to watch you. The crowds have gathered to watch the Lord Jesus. God the Father has put the spotlight on him. He's the treasure. He's the treasure, not us. Now, the point of today is not me trying to explain all of the why behind predestination, but I think one of the things you'll see is if we don't at least dip our toes into the subject of the why, we will misunderstand predestination itself. It's an unconditional election. Okay. Now, all of that was 12 through, excuse me, 10 through 12. Now let's come to verse 13. Verse 13, let me read it. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There are two parts of this verse that could be troubling to your heart. The first is that God states that he hated someone. And then secondly, it at least appears on the surface that he is saying this about a child before the child was born. Now, I don't believe that's what's being said here. I mean, I'll explain why in a second, but let's take both of these difficult things. First, that God states that he hated someone. There is a great deal of misunderstanding about this. We know that the Bible says that God is love. Jesus told us to love our enemies and do good to them. But that has led, that has led some to miss or, or maybe just deliberately ignore the fact that very clearly in the Bible, we are told that God has a righteous fury towards the wicked who hate him. This is righteous. It is appropriate to say that God has both love and hatred towards those who despise him. Okay, um, let, me, let me read to you Psalm 5. It's a, it's a psalm I've read to you before. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5. Just listen. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. That would be unrighteous. You're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before you, your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. That verse is representative of many passages of the Bible. And so here, here's how it works. We, the, the world is just more complex than sometimes the trite little answers that we want to give. Like sometimes we want everything to just be really simple like a nursery rhyme. And it's just, that's not the world. It's more complex than that. You, you can love someone and be angry with them at the same time. Both of those can exist. And God has both a creator's love and also a hatred for wickedness that exists. God has a creator's care towards the wicked and Jesus said, why are we to love and do acts of kindness towards our enemies? He says, it's because God does. God causes his son to shine on the just and the unjust and his rain to fall on the crops, even to those who blaspheme his name. God shows love even to those who hate him. So he has creator's care and love to creatures, but he hates the wickedness and hates the evil. But still yet, even though there is a, a hatred, he acts in love towards the wicked every single day. He lets them be married. He lets them uh, eat. He lets them sleep. He sends his son and his reign. He acts in love towards them. So there's all of this going on. And you, you just got to know this about who God actually is. So that's the first part. The first part. 
But now here's the second part of verse 13 that can unsettle us. It seems that God says this about an unborn baby because the text speaks this about twins before they were born. But I think something else is going on here. Verse 13 is a quote from the book of Malachi. You see, you may think that it's a quote from the book of Genesis, like it was one of those things spoken to Rebecca before the twins are born. It's not. Verse 12, the older will serve the younger. That was spoken in the book of Genesis before they were born. The book, verse 13 was spoken, book of Malachi, which was roughly 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau were born. And I believe it is speaking of the result. So does that make sense? I believe verse 13 is verse 12 is the before I, God chose Jacob and passed over Esau. But I don't believe that God hates a baby from the womb. I don't think it works like that. I don't believe that's the chronology. But God chose to give special grace to Jacob and not to give it to Esau. You're going to have to come to grips with that. You're going to have to come to grips with God passing over some. You're going to have to come to grips with the righteousness of God that when God gives people what they want, he's not done anything wrong. If God lets some people be born and they sprint towards hell and this is what they want and they go to what they want and God lets them, God has not done anything evil. See, we get it all wrong when we think that everybody in the world's all good and God's just willy-nilly throwing people in hell and heaven. That ain't how this works. We're all sprinting towards hell. If God lets some people have what they want, he has done no unrighteousness. The mercy of God that he does not owe anyone is that he grabs some and does what they could not do for themselves. But coming back here, God chose Jacob and he let Esau be born and Esau become what Esau wanted to become. And that was a man who rebelled against God and lived a sinful life and did not regard God. And I believe verse 13 is God looking back and speaking of the result of those things. How did it turn out? How did it turn out? God chose Jacob. What was the end? Jacob became a child of God because of God's work. But what did Esau become? Esau became what he wanted to become and therefore an object of God's wrath. I believe verse 13 is speaking of the result that is there. So I know that as we leave some of those things, your heart still may have some struggle. What I, what I give you the pleading to do now is this. Submit to the word of God and believe that over the course of time, things get clearer. And over and over again with the Bible, there are times we have to hold something on faith. And it starts with just saying, I don't understand it, God, but I trust you. And you submit to it. And then it's later that you see the wisdom, the righteousness, and the goodness and the clarity of it. So start there, and we'll begin next week to show the righteousness of these things. And remember these assumptions that we began with. But now here's, here's where we end. Let me say just three quick pieces of application. Three quick pieces of application. Number one, the Bible is the Word of God. If this is new to you, you may be tempted to do what some people do to Romans 9, and that is take out your knife and butcher the pages. Try to make it say something that's more convenient. 
maybe more of what your flesh wants to say. This is what sometimes people do to Ephesians 5, that passage that talks about the order God created in the family. The husband is the head of the wife. And some people say, well, here's what that really means. By the time they're done, their Bible is bleeding from what they've done to it. Don't do that to Romans 9. Accept it. God is God. Embrace it. We fix our worldview to match the Bible and would not try to change the Bible to match what I think it should say. Number two, God is showing you himself. God is showing you himself. And a conclusion you will come to from really studying the Bible is this. God is not like the nursery rhymes that you may have been taught as a child. He's not tame. He's not tame. If your God has to behave the way that you tell him to, he's not the living God, he's your pet. God is revealing himself to you and he is different than what the nursery lime, little, little trite, coffee mug, social meme kind of sayings make him out to be. He's, he's not tame. He's the sovereign God. Let God be God as if you have a choice. But in your own mind, embrace God as God. Part of what it means to say that God is God is to say that God is sovereign. This is what it means to be God. He has the right, the authority, the power to do whatever he wants. He is who he is. The divine name Yahweh means I am who I am. Do not try to change him. And Christian, this is meant to give you great confidence. God's showing you who he really is. It'll have a number of effects. One of them is, like, I get it. If this is new to you, this is like the kind of stuff that causes your worldview to crash. Like, I got to reboot the system and think through everything. And it may do that. But you also need to know, this is meant to give you confidence and trust like you have never had before. He is bigger than you have ever considered. I was talking with one of the newer members who joined recently and he said to me that he was in, sitting in a sermon one time and the preacher said, looked at the congregation and said, I think God knows the future, don't you? I don't know how you make it. Like that, that kind of, I don't know how you make it with that kind of belief. I think, I think that God knows, not planned, not has the future in his hand. I think probably he knows I wouldn't make it. Like I would just fall in despair and hopelessness because that is not a God who can, you can trust. That's not a God who can help you. You don't pray to that God. You don't pray to that. And what I mean is anybody who holds to that view, you're eventually going to stop praying because you will lose all confidence and it's this, you know, we're not always logical. There are people who have, you know, whacked up views of Romans nine, but still when they get down on their knees and they ask God to save somebody's soul, they're praying to the God of Romans nine. They're praying to the one who's sovereign, who can actually do something. This is the God you can have confidence in. You can ask him for help and he can move the cosmos. He can cause the planets to stop their rotation and he can come and help you. That's the God I want to pray to. That God ordained prayer as a means of receiving. I want to pray. This is the God you can trust. Let it instill confidence in you. You, you have somebody you love who right now is rebelling and hating God. You can ask him to save and you can have confidence. He can do it. And then thirdly, Respond 
in gratitude. You didn't deserve it, but God chose you and called you. Don't ever get over it. Don't ever get bored with it. And if you're here and you are not confident that you are right with God, if you're not confident that you are truly saved, what we've talked about today could lead to some questions and you could say something like, well, now I'm really confused. How do I know if I'm elect? Here, here's the beautiful truth. Do you want to be saved? Do you, do you want to place your trust in Jesus? Okay, if you do, then guess what? You, you are elect. <laughs> you are saved because you wouldn't want him if he had not drawn you. It's never the case that somebody comes to God and truly wants to be saved and truly believes and God says, oh, you know, sorry, you're just not one of my elect. That's not how it works. You want God because he drew you. So believe it is as simple as that. If you will, before you leave here, place your faith in Christ and trust in him, cry out to him, then you will learn some things about eternity. Believe and you will be saved. And if you want help with that, find me before you leave. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you and we thank you. We are amazed as we consider these truths. Help us. Give us understanding, give us grace, help us to believe these things and to trust you more fully because of it. Lord, we pray that you bless us as we dismiss and ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.